Oh, hello there. It's James from Compost Bin of History, coming at you once again from post-production. What you're about to listen to is part two of what would have been an extra-long introductory episode on the Clean Water Act. We've split it into two parts, and this is the history of water management in America before the 1972 Clean Water Act came into effect. Enjoy. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about America pre-Clean Water Act. What were we doing for water regulations? How were we using water? That kind of thing. <laughs> we were treating the rivers like an oil well, and we were just burning off all of the fuel from time to time. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> it's one really interesting anecdote is that like the rates of alcohol consumption in 19th century America were like off the charts, way higher. People drank way more than they do today, right? Jared and I like to drink a lot, especially while while we're doing this podcast. To be in fairness, we're basically going back (laughs) to those times. So I'm just trying (laughs) to prepare. (laughs) But people back then would have drank way more than, than even us, right? Like, we would have been lightweights at the church women's club. And that was because water was so unhealthy. (laughs) It was, like, really dangerous just to drink water because there were no, like, water treatment systems. You know, it was still, like, frontier across a lot of the country. And you were way better off. You were safer to drink just booze because alcohol kills a lot of those waterborne contaminants. Yeah, didn't like multiple consecutive presidents basically die because there was just like an open sewage pit behind the White House? <laughs> I don't know about that. That sounds interesting. <laughs> we Maybe we should that. dive into that a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, so um, there wasn't a lot. There was like, you know, no impetus for regulation because you were still in that, you know, just unrestrained development type of system. <clears throat> yeah, libertarian in action, baby everyone's hammered all the time <laughs> you have to be hammered to deal with the lack of regulations the kids are like hammered at school and but they don't have <laughs> dysentery you know so not yet <laughs> don't worry uh their dad will run out of money so they won't be able to drink anymore quick it, yeah and it's i don't know dude prohibition is such a funny thing too prohibition would be a hilarious like episode as well. <laughs> like how america like the drunkest fucking like skunk of a country just like decides it's gonna like clean its shit up and like just go cold turkey oh yeah dude cold turkey <laughs> always works that's how i've quit smoking so many times <laughs> so yeah um there were some early regulations though on water in um you know like 19th century america so in the 1880s and 1890s congress actually directed the united states army corps of engineers who are going to be very big players through the rest of this story they're great at water (laughs) well they're in the army right and they have engineers so you put those things together and you've got people who are great at water that's true they do so many so many good things with water they're they're like trained to like make pontoon bridges you know and um dams oh wait and dikes yes i think 
I think that about covers it. It's actually. kind of funny. But, uh, like at first, <laughs> at first they started out purposefully displacing people, and now they kind of just accidentally displace people. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cryptic, but we're definitely yeah. going to have to do an episode explaining what I'm talking about at some point. Right. I mean, we definitely need an Army Corps of Engineers episode. You know, they. You know, they're kind of at the bottom of the hill as far as the shit rolling down in terms of who gets stuck with the worst, like, enforcement, though. And the yeah, worst, well, like, they're like those chemists that came up with the uh, chlorine bromine thing. Oh. I mean, they, you know, maybe it wasn't yeah. their idea to do these things, but they... They they did it to their umpteenth degree, though. <laughs> yeah. They're like, they're the Oppenheimer of, <laughs> yeah, of their field. Go. Yeah, I I don't know. I know people who work for the core um and you know they're they're just they're part of the system. They're part of the superstructure and they have to operate within it. And you have to adopt a certain frame of mind if you're going to have that job, I guess. But the core was one of the first to be directed to act on behalf of water in the United States. Okay, so that's why, because of what happens in the 1880s and 1890s, that's why they're still saddled with this job, even though ostensibly they should only be like building pontoon bridges, right? The people who were like the army's like Fortnite crew, right? <laughs> like who, how, when we need to like throw some shit together really fast, what do we need? What do we do? We get the Corps of Engineers. These guys are the ones who are basically charged with enforcing most water law now. I don't know. You got anything on that, Jared? It's not great. <laughs> I, they do such a good job all the time. So, Well, I just want them to keep to only have to do the pontoon bridges, I guess. <laughs> so do the residents of New Orleans. <laughs> yes. So Congress directed the Corps in the 1880s and 1890s to prevent dumping and filling in harbors of the United States. Of course, harbors are like where you take your, you know, shipping commerce through. So it makes sense. You got to keep that navigable. You got to make sure that you can get your, you know, slaves in from East Africa. And Oh, wait, this is 1880s. Excuse me. You got to get your um, indentured servants in from Ireland. And, wait, 1880s? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I think they were, I think the official turn was Chinamen at that time right 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 yes that's who we were getting then you're right um you got to get your uh your immigrants who are looking for a better life from asia in the 1880s and you got to make sure that you can bring them into the harbors and then that you can ship out all the products of their labor in the mines and uh coal fields of the western u.s and do not whatever you do ask why things are so bad in Asia that they need to come here. Right. Definitely don't do that. <laughs> um, so this is in line with uh, what would be continue to be the Corps' main mission, which is to regulate navigable waters. Okay. 
And that's also going to be a huge issue of like, what's a navigable water? Is the emphasis on the water or the navigation part of that? And how big of a vessel do you need to navigate it with? Are we talking like the fucking Titanic? Are we talking about a, a kayak? How big a one you, you know? got? Because I can, I can like navigate a water by just walking through it. I can like walk through a wetland and I've navigate. That's a navigable water, right? Yeah, but can you pull a barge of coal through it? <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. So, and it was rigorously enforced. Okay, this is the this is the other thing I want to emphasize is that throughout this whole lesson on the Clean Water Act, we're actually going to see a lot of periods where like there is like strict enforcement and high standards, and then there are periods where there is not. Like right now, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it incredible to just like even if you don't agree with what was going on, um, just know that at one time our government could actually put an agenda in place and carry yeah. it out and accomplish things, even yeah. if they were horrific. Like we were capable of doing the things that we decided was right. worth doing. Well, and the Clean Water Act is like a big example of that. Right. Like I just I haven't really seen it in my life unless we were going to like go invade someplace. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what we're looking at here is like probably the one of the most monumental pieces of environmental legislation to come out of the United States. Deeply flawed, but it is absolutely like, you know, what we're talking about here is like the harm reduction argument that people are talking about with voting for Joe Biden, right? Like this is a deeply flawed piece of legislation that we're going to discuss that has not worked in terms of its original goals. However, it's way, way better than the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks and should be better, but oh my God, how bad would it be if we didn't have it? Right. There you go. <laughs> the United States 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now this rigorous enforcement comes into question, though, and the Corps' authority starts to get knocked back in 1910 when the Corps of Engineers objects to a New York City sewer pipeline, which was going to emit effluent into a harbor that was governed by core jurisdiction. Can you imagine what a New York City sewage pipeline at that time must oh my have been God. like? Oh, I mean, no wonder. They were still just worried about navigation. They were just thinking about all oh, all that shit is just going like, to clog up the, the channel. <laughs> There's too many turds in the river. We can't we can't ship our barley upstream. <laughs> Right. And, and so importantly, though, what we see is also now another thing that's going to mark the rest of the story, which is conflict between government agencies at different levels, whether it's between like um, a county and a state, a county and the, the you know Corps of Engineers or the EPA, or in this case, the Corps of Engineers and the city of New York. So the, U the, the Corps of Engineers takes this to court, but the court rules that this type of pollution is actually a state matter. Not something that the core as a federal body can rule on and um, regulate. God, don't you love states' rights? <laughs> but yeah, so 
this is kind of the, what marks America before the Clean Water Act, right? Um, Clean Water Act being in 1972, we kind of have this push and pull between various federal and state bodies, local people, and then just individuals who don't understand any of this shit and don't care about it anyway, and just continue to act as they would have regardless. And this is where we'll talk briefly about Jared and I's family stories. And uh, Jared, do you want to do you want to tell us about your your family of trash truckers growing up on the Iowa prairie? <laughs> <laughs> well, which trash are we interested in? Because um, <clears throat> we were a, we were a, definitely a prolific, uh, polluting pack of people. <laughs> Right. Um, I know you've talked about like the streams that like that you knew when you were a kid and how like clogged up with oh, like God. old cars and oh cars. Tires. I mean, shit, combines. <laughs> 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 yeah. So when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm in middle of nowhere, Iowa, Oto, Iowa, population of eighty-eight, probably less than that now. But uh, there was this creek that. We called it the Crick, which I only realized when I was like probably 12 or 13 years old is not how most people say that. But uh, yeah, there was this small stream that emptied into the Little Sioux River, which then eventually is a tributary of the Missouri River near my house that ran like all the way through our farmland. I mean, it was about a five minute walk from my front door. And this stream, you know, this this seems like something that would be incredible. Most people don't have a stream that's that close to their house. But uh, I wasn't really allowed to play there most of the time because it was dangerous. Now, this stream was dangerous not because um, of, like, the water flow level or anything like that. The stream was dangerous because it was filled with, like, old farm machinery and jagged pieces of metal and like oil barrels and uh pretty much anything you can imagine from like some fairy tale cartoon <laughs> anything that's going to be the main antagonist in the film <laughs> in the dreams in the dream sequence yes i mean i you know i would sneak down to this creek anytime i could basically when i was a kid because it's it's amazing there's like frogs down there there's catfish um Mm -hmm. you'll see herons maybe deer drinking down there but also uh you know maybe you'll take one of your dogs with you one time and he'll drink water out of the wrong place and then he's just kind of sick and dies a couple months later Mm um yeah you know so this uh thing that should have been this incredible experience i guess which it was i mean i I love this place you know i'd go fishing there and all that stuff but it just uh it's too bad how many practices that were just i mean not there was a certain time when i mean i was a kid this was just uh this was normal you know like we would have a barrel full of like old pieces of metal and maybe we had some antifreeze from some of the semis in there. I mean, you'd load mm-hmm. it up in the loader right. tractor and, you know, go dump it in the creek. That's bank stabilization. We don't want this to erode. You <laughs> Heaven know. forbid. You know. <laughs> uh, maybe we shouldn't investigate what sh- which practices we're doing that is leading all of this erosion to go on. But 
Right. You know, fuck it. Just throw a bunch of metal and chemicals into the mm-hmm. into the stream so that our farmland doesn't erode. <laughs> right. That's the externalization of costs that we talked about, right? Because it's way cheaper to do that than to dispose of it correctly or in a safe manner. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe. You, would, you wouldn't even know that. Some of it didn't even make sense because even when I was, even when I was like seven or eight years old i mean you know we used to go to the junkyard regularly and uh, it's full of steel there's like prices mm-hmm. on the board when you go on there of what they pay <laughs> for like steel and things you could like have that. just taken it there <laughs> totally when i was like when i was a little kid i would ask my grandpa like like we've got these fucking combines in this creek over here they weigh thousands of pounds i just looked over there on the board and they're paying like $72 per ton for scrap steel or whatever it was, you know, like <laughs> this oh, wouldn't wow. have costed us money. Oh my even. God. Holy cow. <laughs> you know, and like well, out in the trees or whatever, we just have it full of like old implements that aren't yeah. being used anymore. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that's an important like demonstration of an actually a real environmental concept, which is that there is some acceptable load of contaminants because part of the dissolution effect of water and air systems is that if there were just a little bit of antifreeze or something, it would quickly become diluted and to a safe level in the mass of water in that system. And so a lot of people, especially during this time period, were still operating in that mindset that the creek takes it away, you know, like you dump things there because then they go away. And regardless, it's not an area that you can like actively farm or use anyway. So at least it's out of the way and you don't have to deal with it. Right. And even now in our regulated system, the EPA still is operating on that same acceptable level of disbursement by saying that, yeah, you can pollute the Missouri river, but we have to monitor it and set, set, you know, safety regulations and we'll find you if you, well, we used to find you, um, if you exceeded those. Right. I mean, we would have people from like the DNR come and check out like (laughs) our leech fields from our hog, from our hog pens or like the place where we washed out all of the livestock trailers or our stream and they would they would tell us like you know this isn't okay but they, we were never fined right like my grandpa straight up would just argue with them tell them we weren't going to do these things and then they'd come back like a couple months later and be like okay well mr mitchell uh how about if we throw some tax credits your way that type of thing and then, oh my god like wow. <laughs> so things haven't changed that much overall uh, really i mean not really no so I'll, t- I'll share like my family's story a little bit as well. My dad's side of my family also were farmers on the other side of the Missouri River in Nebraska. And they lived in kind of a similar setting on a little creek called Maple Creek. But they lived kind of like up on the hill above the creek because the creek would flood regularly. So you don't want to like live in the floodplain because you're going to get flooded every year. Oh, they right? should have built a dam. Right. Well, we'll see what happens. But my dad actually even remembers from 
you know, he was born in 1944 from when he was a kid. He still, he went to a one room schoolhouse in, in Nebraska. And he remembers riding his pony across the flooding Creek. And like that, you know, it'd be like up to his, up to his like knees as he was like riding the horse, although the horse could still like walk, but you know, it was a big flood and he still had to like go across the Creek to go to school. Man, wouldn't it be something to have experiences like people that were born in that area had where i know (laughs) you know like just some of the stories that my great grandpa would tell me of like this thing that seems relatively innocuous but it was just like had a profound effect on him just this very simple thing like like riding a pony through a creek right that type of thing gets locked in your head yeah it's uh i would love to know you know what that's like and but um it's a different time and so basically the way that you know this farm operated um in the 1930s 40s 50s was that you don't farm the floodplain or you don't live there but that's where you run your livestock kind of intermittently when the water regime allows in that floodplain forest that typically builds up around the stream or river you might put your cows or your hogs there and when it's not flooding, they can eat lots of that good vegetation and, um, you know, do well. And then likewise in the fall and winter, that's where you would go to fish and hunt, which was still an important food source for like a lot of these, you know, rural families, even into the 20th century that you maintained this habitat. And, you know, my dad talks about that. He would just walk down the hill to the floodplain forest and, you know, shoot squirrels and rabbits and, you know, they'd look for pheasants and catch fish in the creek and bring them home to eat for dinner. Man, have you ever, have you ever like read the stories of when like the colonists first got to like the New England area? Just like how many lobsters there were everywhere in the ocean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, I have. Um it was pretty, pretty wild in some areas and in some areas even more so because of the depopulation that had occurred beforehand. But still, I think this is another one of those like, you know, crazy unique experiences. Even for a person growing up in a rural area today, it's, it's unfamiliar because of the ubiquity of supermarkets and modern food, food chain, basically. Well, I mean, even me growing up on a farm, I mean, we had something that I would like kill for these days but we had like 80 acres of just like wild timber basically yeah exactly and we'd go there as a novelty to hunt deer but like i mean this was not like an important food source you know we turned mm-hmm. like most of the deer into deer sticks or whatever and then like give them to the neighbors and stuff like that right Of course, we talked in our big ag episode about how the lead up to the ag crisis of the 80s was like this period of consolidation and get bigger, get out and buy up land and buy fancy equipment and get profitable and, you know, all this, all this shit. And of course, that's when they start looking at all these areas around these streams as potentially lucrative property for not just, you know, running cattle through intermittently. But getting acres and acres well, yeah, of valuable no, we got to get some cash crops on these on this place. Exactly, 
it's a way more consistent and also insurable form of of agricultural production. So with that came the conversion of these areas. And what happened specifically on my the farm that my dad was living on was that the process was that of straightening all of these creeks in these areas, which is very, very common across much of the Great Plains. Well, I mean, shit, we've we've done this to the Missouri River south of Ponca, Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, you we just, even do it to major rivers, yeah, which is insane. You just turn everything into a drainage ditch. Yeah, the whole point is to get water through there faster. So even if there's a flood, it vacates the area more quickly, doesn't impact your ability to grow row crops, and you can get out, you can basically farm right up to the edge of the creek because the creek is now just a big straight ditch. Yep. If anything, <laughs> know, if anybody knows anything about erosion or about, uh, you know... <laughs> right. Well, no, hold on, Jared, though, because... I think you know that straight lines are extremely common in nature. (laughs) We see them all the time because they're very utilitarian and just make a lot of sense from a design perspective. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, That's, you know, that's why all of uh, the lots that we've put onto this are straight lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's it. Because obviously, you know, rocks trees um right it's all straight well it's, i mean that's the way we lines. do things now so that's right. natural because humans mm-hmm. some humans are doing it so that's yeah that's nature the humans right. in charge have decided that what we are doing is natural right and when you have a straight line that is your what was once your your family's you know stream now it's a drainage ditch, and that straight line means that water moves way more quickly through there, which means that as water moves more quickly, it erodes away the bottom of the stream more quickly. And that process of erosion leads to an overall drop in the in the water table. So what you set out to do to vacate water more quickly through the area so that you can grow crops... You did that even better than you thought you were going to. <laughs> Exactly. Um, And now you have to irrigate these areas that once you were, you know, plowing up because of the easy water table. Right. That's all right, though, man, because now we got some new markets going. Yeah. You know, why would you need need a continuously flowing artesian well if you just had a natural (laughs) stream that was irrigating this place naturally? Yeah. Well, and, and along with, you know, the the um, erosion issues, you no longer have floodplain habitat. You no longer have a stream that you can catch fish in. You can no longer um, go there to hunt because it is basically just a ditch. I mean, some stuff will go on there, but it's not the same ecological value of that complex meandering stream that, you know, has trees growing and can expand or contract given climatic shifts and it's a dynamic system, and now you've put it into a straight line and said, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you've selected for only species that thrive under disturbance are going to grow there. Exactly. Fucking weeds and pheasants, basically. <laughs> um, pheasants, the state bird of South Dakota. Yeah. Even the pheasants can't exist without some of that grassland habitat, though. And um, pure agricultural production 
is basically just incredibly harmful for the environment. Well, don't worry. We'll just plant a bunch of brome on 80 acres of degraded land. Right. Well, and and so um, that's that's the way a lot of this land looks now, by the way, that I'm talking about. It's just a bunch of brome is there. And um, I feel like actually can we can we talk about for a second? Like, all right. So we have like maybe like 35 people that listen to this. Uh huh. Does the average person like have a concept of what brome even is? Because we talk about it all the time. I think so. I mean, well, you know, smooth brome is just a invasive grass. Um, It was introduced from Eurasia. I mean, it's literally like if you go out somewhere that isn't in town and you see right. some long grass, it's probably brome. The odds are heavy that it's brome. It's very, very common and very successful grass. But yeah, well, we'll do it. We'll do a full episode on smooth brome sometime. But needless to say, this area is all in smooth brome now. And what's really interesting is that all uh, it's actually the the floodplain dropping or the the excuse me the water table dropping and the incision from the erosion has gotten so bad that basically it has knocked out three county road bridges along the extents of this Maple Creek because when they straightened it they set this process in motion of erosion until eventually you have a new floodplain establishing within the canyon that you cut when you were making the drainage ditch because water does not want to go in a straight line. It wants to bounce around and eventually it will. And now basically the County has just stopped any maintenance on these three bridges, which literally have, have like fallen apart. You cannot drive, drive across them. I've crossed them. Um, the superstructure is still there. If you, you can balance your shotgun on your back, if you have a strap and then like wiggle across one of the beams. Um, but that's, that's about it. And so that original effort has now, you know, destroyed human infrastructure as well as ecological value. Yeah. And I feel like you can see this if you've ever been out to like the agricultural areas of Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, find a creek and nine times out of 10, it's going to be in like a 12 foot ravine. Right. Or like an eight foot ravine. That's why. And that is that is not what that would have looked like. 200 years ago Mm-mm. even even 100 years ago yeah so that's that's another type of thing that the the clean water act will attempt to regulate as well not just the the direct pollution into waterways but also how waterways are affected and manipulated and again, this is going to have varying success. It's kind of incredible, just like the story that your average Midwestern creek can tell about like invasive species and erosion and pollution. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, that's like the, the microcosm of everything that's wrong with what's going on in our current system a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So... How much more do you want to do, Jared? Oh, I thought we were just going to power through and record whatever we oh, record man. and then chop it up. I have, I have, se- so I have 17 pages of notes. Oh, you said 15. No, I added two. Oh, and wait, we're midway, we've been we're recording? midway page. How have you been writing while we've been recording? <laughs> we're going to get up to the Clean Water Act itself. Okay. How about that? 
All right, so um, all of this just sets the stage for the period of rapid environmental degradation that would come through the 1940s to the 1970s and the actual implementation of the Clean Water Act. Basically, as industry catches up with, you know, settlement and exploitation of environmental resources, waterways rapidly degrade. Yeah, just think about those two time periods, though. Like the 40s versus the 70s. Yeah. That is the same amount of time as the 90s to today. But the the amount of changes that went on in that time period mm-hmm. were... I think there were there were more changes, I feel like. Oh, way more. Are you kidding period. me? It was yeah. a completely different world every decade. Oh, yeah. Whereas, like, yeah. right now, I mean, this is basically... We have a 90s president. Well, I mean, this is, it's basically the same as the 90s. We just have, like, better TVs and fucking phones and yeah. computers and shit. But, like, all of that shit still existed. Think of how many things in 1970 did not even exist in 19... Like, nobody even had considered... Right. I mean, you have World War II. You have the post-war economic boom. You have the development of, like, suburbs. The, the whole, like, vision of, like you know, make America great again is spawned in this period, right? Okay. Not before that, but like. (laughs) This is like the most like Iowa way to look at things. But like when I was a kid, (laughs) we had tractors both from the 1940s and from the 1970s. And the difference between those two things was like, it was like a completely different thing entirely. Right. So that coincides with rapid environmental deterioration. Basically, I don't know if this rings true to you, Jared, but you might find this surprising, but economic production was balanced by environmental decay. Uh, No, that's no. Mark Benioff will not go for this. (laughs) This is not right. This is not how things happen. So for, for a lot of major rivers, this got really, really bad to the point that on some, like a, an easy example, although there are hundreds of these. Oh, we're going to talk about the, the Cuyahoga. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, which basically runs between um, Akron, Ohio and Cleveland, Ohio, about a 45 mile stretch through like this heavily, particularly in this time period, industrialized area. Yeah, since is, then, since NAFTA. neoliberalization. <laughs> no, go ahead. Uh, so this is before NAFTA. So like this is where everything used yeah. to get built. Exactly. And this river, um, which was soaking up all of this pollution from all of these industries, got so polluted that it basically caught fire like tons of times. And um, let me see if I can find my quote here about the Cuyahoga. And I bet there were no mosquitoes in that river, though. I doubt it. So in 1968, the whole 45 mile reach between Akron and Cleveland was devoid of fish. You couldn't find one fish in 45 miles or river between two major cities. See, now that violates the Clean Water Act. (laughs) Uh, And this is a quote from a Kent State University symposium describing one section of the river. Well, it's on fire again. Uh, Maybe we should... (laughs) Think wow, about, this is fucked. <laughs> maybe we should vote for doing something about this. 
Below Lower Harvard Bridge to Newburgh and South Shore Railroad Bridge, the channel becomes wider and deeper, and the level is controlled by Lake Erie. Downstream of the railroad bridge to the harbor, the depth is held constant by dredging, and the width is maintained by piling along both banks. The surface is covered with brown, oily film, observed upstream as far as the southerly plant effluent. In addition, large quantities of black, heavy oil floating in slicks, sometimes several inches thick, are observed frequently. Debris and trash are commonly caught up in these slicks, forming an unsightly floating mess. Anaerobic action is common as the dissolved oxygen is seldom above a fraction of a part per million. The discharge of cooling water increases the temperature by 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa, whoa, 5.6 to 8.3 degrees Celsius. Whoa, whoa, whoa. At the place where this is being introduced or the river was being increased by up to 15 degrees? Um, I think in that area of the river. Okay. Like, not just right by it, but like that, that so area like right around the, the river point. was being warmed up by 15 degrees. It's being warmed up a lot, yes. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and, and on top of that, the velocity is negligible. So it's sitting there. And sludge accumulates on the bottom. Animal life does not exist. Only the algae, Oscillatoria, grows along the piers, but only above the waterline. The color of the water changes from gray-brown to rusty-brown as the river proceeds downstream. Transparency is less than half half a foot, about 10 centimeters, in this reach. The entire reach is grossly polluted. You're making so, this guy sound like reasonable and uh, measured and <laughs> all of that, where I feel like the whole thing should just be replaced by, ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of, but the thing is, is like people still in lots of areas talk about rivers and like the same, maybe not the same extreme today, but when I lived in Sioux Falls in South Dakota, everyone would talk about like, don't wade in the big sioux river like don't eat fish you catch out of the big sioux river there are fish in there it can at least support an animal but you don't want to have any interaction with that water oh you can eat the fish you just cannot let the water touch your skin especially if you have any type of open wound yeah because that's going to get infected you don't want to have any open wound near all of that feces oh my god Basically, the Big Sioux River is like one of those jungle traps in the Vietnam War. I have a friend that got really drunk and fell into Brule Creek, which is like one of the tributaries of the Big Sioux River. And he got a staph infection and he got the flu (laughs) within two days. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So there was this terrible condition of rivers, in particular rivers, but, you know, streams and waterways and coastal areas across the u.s that really became an issue in the 1970s now this is uh, i shouldn't say across the u.s because this is mainly where it was focused on our rivers of like the industrial east and the pacific northwest you know in the 50s um and 60s they were just like still throwing native people off their land and building dams in south dakota you know they weren't even at the point of severe environmental degradation yet for a lot of the you know backwater pun intended states give it some time give it some time and they'll get there takes yeah. a while you know 
Oh, they they definitely got there. <laughs> <laughs> but when I when I gave this as a presentation at like a an NRCS symposium, I was like the invited speaker, the special guest. I told all these farmers there, I was like, I don't think you guys are going to find this surprising, but the people who make policy in D.C. don't give a fuck about anyone in South Dakota. They're just making policies for like Ohio and California and Oregon and shit. And they were all like, they were all like, yeah, obviously. And then all the NRCS people who were there were like pulling at their collars, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think when I start uh, applying to jobs, I'm going to have to stop actually telling what my beliefs are in teaching like you know the (laughs) so um in the 1970s that's why you have this environmental movement come to the fore in america with things like earth day the anti-nuclear energy and anti-nuclear weapons stuff comes about in the 70s Um, Rachel Carson writes Silent Spring, which is this huge book that draws lots of attention towards the issues of like um, environmental contamination through pesticides, particularly DDT. Can you imagine that too? Like in this day and age, somebody writing a book about like environmentalism and why pollution is bad and it becoming like a national sensation. Man, I, it's so sad, dude. (laughs) Well, that's what we're doing with this podcast, right? Yeah. Well, I remember learning about that for the first time, and that's what blew my mind. Like, this is what people cared about back then. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, atomization and neo neoliberalization is what happened. That was the other thing that came about to squash all this bullshit. You can't have people like working together to clean up the environment and you know shackle shackle the interests of our hardworking capitalists and business people how are they going to make money how are they going to make a living yeah see we need the synthesis here of those people spearheading the effort <laughs> thanks mark Benny. <laughs> <laughs> hey they they know their brand <laughs> and so with in particular with water pollution this was a concern because you know water pollution affects people's health in lots of different ways. For instance, obviously, you've already mentioned how you can get staph infections. Um, you can also get uh, gastrointestinal disorders due to the bacteria and viruses that may be in poorly treated water. There was a study in Philadelphia in the 1990s that indicated that elderly people who drank water, just like city water, following an increase in turbidity of 9%. Turbidity is the amount, basically how clear the water is. And more turbidity means that it's less clear. So there was slightly cloudier water, 9% cloudier water, led to increased um, gastrointestinal hospitalizations among elderly people in Philadelphia. So even like little changes in water quality, even as they're worked out through municipal water systems and water treatment plants, still have health implications for people. And on the other extreme, there are things like cancer, right? Like by being exposed to, you know, things like arsenic and radon and uranium. God, isn't it awesome how like (laughs) pollution is good for hospital bottom lines? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, okay, dude. This is this is going to get even more personal for me on this next one, because water pollution actually also contributes to neurological problems. And so a a recent study from California 
showed that people who drank water from private wells had higher rates of Parkinson's disease than the national average, much higher rates. And it seems that that's because of pesticide contamination in shallow water wells. In particular, a couple of pesticides, um, Propergate and Chloropyrifos, um, these are sprayed a lot on some of those crops they would have, like in California, like pistachios and you know beans and stuff. And it seems that these are actually pretty stable in the environment and actually collect in the local groundwater supply. Oh, good. And for people who uh, were living on like farms and drinking well water from the groundwater that was contaminated with these pesticides, that actually, as they were drinking that, as they were developing as children, that led to later in life um, neurological disorders because basically it kept them from, um, you know, like the myelin sheaths that form around, this is getting too deep, the myelin sheaths that form around your nerves didn't develop fully and degraded more quickly. Yeah, and Parkinson's we get it. means you, that you were in a neurology PhD. Okay. Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that, you know, my own grandfather who grew up on a small farm in Nebraska drinking well water in a heavily agricultural area during this time period as well. He has Parkinson's disease. And I can't help but think about all that well water that he drank for all those years. And Back in the 40s, 50s, before they knew about all these connections, you know, but they these chemicals still existed and were being widely used. I think probably a lot of people out here who are listening to this know someone with Parkinson's disease, probably an older person. And I would bet that person also drank a lot of um, unregulated well water when they were a kid. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever like confided in you about this, but yeah, I drank well water exclusively until i was like 12 years old and also used to spray spray glyphosate in a cabless tractor you know when it's windy because that's when you want to spray and uh uh yeah i don't really know what it's done to my body but you might not know for a while but that's incredibly fucked up you know like that's that's why I don't know, man, this, this whole profit motive. I don't know. Well, I mean, my, my entire dad's side of the family, I mean, I don't really communicate with or like any of them, but Mm -hmm. they still drank well water. I mean, they still live in that same area where everybody's spraying glyphosate and whatever else, you know, two, four D. I, I don't think they're doing that shit anymore, but still. Uh, so, yeah, to loop back, in rural California, there's a 90% higher risk of Parkinson's. 90% higher for people with uh, private wells near fields that are being sprayed with these chemicals. And lastly, you know, water pollution also has some broader impacts on the environment. And um, Can I just interject I, a I shared. Bit? What's that? Uh, this is why, like, I, I get really pissed off when people, like start just harping on like lack of education in red states specifically yeah. um, <clears throat> for why people maybe aren't that intelligent and things like that. And I mean, there's so much more going on than just lack of education to the average person, mm-hmm. um, especially in Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, Louisiana, Mississippi, like all of these 
you know, quote unquote, red poor states. I mean, right. Lack of education. Sure. But there's a lot of things outside of people's control. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky that I was able to have some of those rural experiences as a kid because my dad managed a farm, but we lived in the city and I was drinking municipal, like, you know, safe water. Basically, I mean, I'm a big believer that everyone should be able to have those types of experiences. I mean, that's absolutely, um, they're incredibly important, but you shouldn't have to, you know, poison yourself, you know? Well, no, I mean, but yeah. Or your kids, you know, shit. Right. So water pollution also obviously affects the environment. All living animals, um, are going to have kind of the same problems that we've talked about here. And interestingly, you know, there's this great Alex Jones clip that I wanted to just include in this episode. (laughs) You know, of, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you one more time. Yeah, yeah. But part of me thinks that the only way that we're actually going to get clean water is if this water starts giving the cows cancer before they can be, like, marketed (laughs) at the slaughterhouse. So if this starts giving cows cancer before they get to about a year and a half, something will be done with it. Maybe then, yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course this is all difficult because as we're going to see a lot of this is from non-point sources of pollution, right? Which are harder to again, point to and say, here it is. Especially since the, the crops in these fields where all this is coming from look incredibly healthy. Oh yeah. Well, you put that much, that much fertilizer on them and keep them coated in pesticides and roundup. They're probably going to look pretty good. But yeah, so uh, let's, I, and you know, I actually, I really like this clip because even though it's kind of um, questionable, I think that this gets it a, like a, a, (laughs) well, you said Alex Jones. Yeah. But Alex Jones, you know, he's, he's speaking to like brute human id, right? And I think that we have like um, a very basic interest in clean water. And I think even Alex Jones understands that. But what we'll see is that, you know, he just doesn't understand anything about science. Or... He, he's got to mix his protein powder with something. <laughs> I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? <laughs> ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny. <laughs> oh, man. That's a classic. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was chemicals in the water that were making frogs like hermaphroditic and making them grow extra limbs and shit. Yeah, and so the the kernel of truth there, it's, it's actually the study that he, I think he was referring to was one that was about fish. But yeah, this actually had to do with oh, like Oh, no, I saw that. Anti- that was a Simpsons episode. <laughs> well, um, this actually is kind of interesting. is because like anti- uh, androgens androgens being the hormones that you know are responsible for male development oh i thought you were going to say the hormones responsible for david bowie <laughs> no you're thinking androgynous ah um, yeah okay <laughs> um but androgens are ho- hormones responsible for deve- male development and interestingly even because of like drugs that use estrogen pass through people's bodies and then into waterways and it seems like some of those might act as anti-androgens and lead to fish 
and perhaps amphibians basically, yeah, changing their biological sex in response to their environment. And by the way, I, I want to do an, like we did anti ENV 101. I want to do an anti bio 101 and talk about sex and gender also at some point. Because that that shit just breaks down like super quick. Even even biological sex, you can't really like formulate much much of a concrete idea around. Yeah, I mean, a lot of plants, especially, we like try oh to God. put male and female <laughs> to like make sense of what's going on, but it kind of doesn't really make sense unless you are just like indoctrinated into thinking that way. Right. And so that's what I find really funny about that Alex Jones clip is because I feel like that sometimes, like not that they're turning the frogs gay, but just like, (laughs) I don't want people putting chemicals in my water, period. And it makes me really so mad. I want to hit my desk. But then he says, I'm sick and tired of this social engineering. And I'm like, hold on, Alex, maybe social engineering is what could keep the chemicals out of the water. And, you know, maybe that's exactly what we need to do. But I, I mean, obviously it's Alex Jones. You can't reason with that man. So. Uh, well, he's I, pure id. I mean, he's talking about it turning the frogs gay. I don't know if that's what it was doing. It was just uh, maybe making their gender a little fluid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple extra uh, <laughs> questionable. Yeah. Not even highly offensive. We'll just put it well, out there. There's highly some offensive. extra bits of ideology in there. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. All right, so I think with all of that, that takes us up to the 1970s and the actual Clean Water Act, and we're going to leave it off, and or rather, we'll pick it up next time with the most cunning motherfucker to ever sit in the White House, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Famously not a crook. I'm not a crook. <laughs> I refuse to be recorded doing that. And we got through four of my 17 pages. Hey, hey. so this is only going to be a five part episode. (laughs) I know, dude. Um, We're totally going to turn into Dan Carlin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we're, we're almost exclusively talking about like trends and forces. So uh, yeah, we're like the anti Dan. Well, we got Richard Nixon in there though. Oh yeah. I suppose that's true. Yeah. He's a, the, I think, I don't know if I would call him a great man, but um, Dan Carlin probably would. You know what? I think I think Nixon was a great man. Well, as as we're gonna see, you know, in terms of like you know harm mitigation, and if we're just talking about the environment, it's he's kind of the most effective environmentalist president since Roosevelt. Yeah, well, uh, doesn't uh, Chomsky, I know people don't fucking love Chomsky anymore, but uh, doesn't he say that Nixon was like the last true liberal president? I think he does, yeah. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, for sure. I'm still calling him a cunning motherfucker, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I just think that yeah. uh, Nixon is like the the perfect example of what happens to quote-unquote great men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know he's like a yeah totally he was like a tragic greek comedy he was like a greek comedy and tragedy in the same person i i i think of him as like gorbachev honestly you know oh but he like, never drank though oh like, yeah that's true gorbachev he was just like sloppy he loved perpetually 
Nixon was just like such a fucking weirdo <laughs> that yeah. he was like stone sober. Oh, he every, was though. Every minute of every day, he was just like Dude, mainlining I... his fucking like whatever his psychosis was. That was enough for him. Dude, my favorite my favorite Nixon story was how um, the woman he would eventually marry. Like he got so hardcore friend zoned that when before they started dating, he would drive her and her, you know, boyfriends around on dates and shit. What? <laughs> like he was that guy who was like so into that one girl. He was like that dude in not another teen movie. And <laughs> he would like literally, you know the hell he was like, like a, yeah, he oh, was like you a need to ride, sure. He was like a fuck my girl next door guy. Yeah. It's like not exactly. even a fuck my wife guy. No. <laughs> oh my God, dude. That's like some fucking Instagram dad shit. But like you said, it's also, I think speaks to kind of like, um, I think, oh gosh, was Nixon a Protestant? Oh my God. Of course. Are you kidding me? I feel me? like he's got to be. Just like look know, at but... everything he did in his life. I feel like that's super Protestant. Like Nixon's like an ultra Protestant. As yeah. Well. He's going to like outwork these other guys. He's going to play the long game. Yeah. And like show her a good time with these other guys long enough that like, mm-hmm. I don't even know. Right. And be a total asshole of a president, but still also like say like, I got you hippies. I got the environment. I saved it for you motherfuckers, you know, but like, he kind of did. He kind of did. Yes. <laughs> He like he was like like Nixon saved the whales. I'm gonna take this thing that you fuckers care about, and I'm gonna do it, and then I'm gonna throw you all in jail for smoking weed. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. So, (laughs) yep. That's where that's where we'll pick up next time on Compost Bin of History presents the Clean Water Act. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, please email us at compostbenefhistory at gmail.com. I promise I'll check it oh, one of these days. Don't go all like Jeb on us. Please email us. Please clap. Please clap. <laughs> have we got any emails yet? Well, we haven't. So that's why I haven't been checking. Oh, okay. Um, Watch. We're just going to own ourselves right now. Nope. Nobody wants to send us anything. Oh, yeah. we. I think it's an ad, though. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll take a junk mail. It's our first one. Yep um nicholas hildebrand writes in says join forces with other podcasts to grow your audience hi there my name is nicholas that's spelled n-i-k-l-a-s oh god i straight up hate this guy already (laughs) my name is nicholas and i reach out because of your podcast the compost bin of history got the name slightly wrong there it's actually compost bin of history the the is a typo, which is perpetuated on our iTunes page. Well, I may have said that in one of our episodes. So. <laughs> uh, I am the founder of Audrey, spelled like the typical name Audrey, okay. where we help podcast creators partner up with each other to grow their audiences jointly. We have been building a free platform, 7,500 plus members, to connect like-minded creators for cross-promotions and partnerships. We would love... To have you and the Compost Bin of History on board. Yeah, what's their price? Audrey helps you team up with creators and collaborations of any kind. Um, blah, blah, blah. Niche to talk. Right persons. Ultimately, up to you. Full control. Content. Collaborate. 
please follow the link here. We will. We took the time to pre-fill some information for you. Smiley face? Okay. That feels a little bit presumptuous. I don't know. This is Audrey, by the way. Nicholas Hildebrand is managing director of Audrey, along with Eugenio Warglian. Well, Nicholas, thank you for writing in. I'm afraid that we're not really that interested in joining forces with other podcasts yet because you didn't actually mention any other podcasts. So we have no idea what you're really standing for or talking about. Kind of seems like a scam. Oh, dude, can we join forces with Alex Jones though? I mean, he's like only on podcast now, right? But all right. So if Alex Jones is the id, would we be the ego or the super ego? Super ego. Well, who's our ego then? Is it Dan Carlin? Uh, no, no, well, we are obsessed with him, though. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily yeah. want to protect him. Mm-mm. No. I don't know. Freud Maybe. was always Freud was always a bit woo-woo for me, anyway. <laughs> for sure. I think we sure. just both need to do more cocaine, and it'll all reveal itself. <laughs> Man, yeah, like Arthur Conan Doyle fucking doing coke all the time. That's how you get writing done, I think. I mean... Absinthe and cocaine seems to be how most of the people I was interested in reading got their shit done. We're just running this podcast on beer and weed. If we really were serious, we would start drinking absinthe and smoking cocaine. We're just simulacra and shitty ones at that. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it off, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Compost bin of history. We suck. Sit down. Stand up. Pass out. 